Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. So this morning, um, oh, it feels like a while since I was uh, preaching, but which is good, actually. We have such an amazing team of staff and those who preach and those who um, do ministry with our kids and in all of the different areas of our church. I don't know if you know this, but it's not like we run a babysitting service for your children down there. They're actually investing spiritually into their lives as intentionally as we do up here, they do downstairs. And we just have an amazing team. And last week was uh, an incredible weekend here. Um, Pastor Brenda was preaching and it was, it was amazing. I don't know if you've noticed this. Like, so we have this kind of like Christian sort of phrasing, like when the anointing comes, that kind of thing. And that may seem weird and it kind of is weird actually, to be honest. Um, but it's like, that's kind of the way we say, like, God is powerfully moving. I noticed something last week in Brenda that I'd never seen before. And kind of when that was getting stirred up, there was kind of like this knee jerk that happened as she was walking across the stage. It was like, she was like getting really focused and intentional. And there's just this little jerk that was happening as she was walking. And she did it right in front of me. And the very thing my mind went to was Elaine from Seinfeld. And I was like, she, that's like a lane right there. That's that dance move. That's like, I don't know if that came from God or if that's like episode 386 of Seinfeld. So if Brenda's a lane, I just hope, I just hope, I really, really hope that I'm not Newman in the equation. <laughs> oh, anyway, it's good to poke fun at each other. I'm sure it'll come back to me next week. Um, today we're actually diving into a new trajectory and a new um, series, and we're going to be in it for a while. And I don't know about you, but I kind of follow sort of what's happening culturally in Canada and the United States and just all over the world. And I'm just seeing more and more and more these uh, men and women who uh, so many people look up to across the world just packing it in with their faith, just giving up and, and, and moving on and in some sort of dysfunctional way, really celebrating that as some kind of victory for freedom in their life. And what has grieved me more than anything, I think, is that so much of what they're talking about and so much of what the discourse is in our culture really centers around extremely elementary truths of the Christian faith. And it's like there's no foundation in our faith anymore. I think that generally speaking, we're biblically illiterate in our culture. You could have gone to church for 30 years and there's still not this foundation and that's not necessarily your failure, that's actually the failure of the church to not actually dig into the word and understand why we believe what we believe and what our convictions are and what the Bible has to say about our life and about culture and about the world. And so 
We're actually going to dive into a book called Ephesians in the New Testament. And this book of Ephesians, as just a general overview, is this, this majestic and sweeping discussion of the purposes of God for your life and my life. It's a, this, this majestic view at who God is, who we are, what his will is, and not just that, but how we actually live it out and express it in our daily life. It doesn't just leave it at sort of head knowledge, uh, theory level kind of teaching. It actually boils it down to everyday practice. How can we understand what the will of God is? How can we not only understand what his heart for us and his will is, but how do we actually bring our lives under alignment to that? And the book of Ephesians just covers these grand sort of ideas, these really fundamental questions to our faith, to life in general. And so we're going to take a verse-by-verse look at this book because I believe we need to understand and be rooted not in what we just believe about ourselves, not in our humanistic, self-indulgent, narcissistic, cultural view that in and of ourselves we can provide the answers to everything we need, that we can supply our own sufficiency, and that if you're just uh, strong inside, you can make it through. That's nonsense. You're not strong enough, and I'm not strong enough. We don't possess within ourselves the ability to produce the kind of change that the gospel does and that Jesus does in our life. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we do. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we can know the heart of God without knowing his word. It just doesn't work that way. And so Paul writes this book. Paul is the author of that, and we're going to look into his life today. But he writes this book as he's surveying the cultural landscape of his time. He writes this book to discuss these big and majestic ideas of who God is, who we are. What in the world has God called us to do? How has he called us to live? And then how do we actually do that? Today we're going to start right at the top of this book. If you have your Bible, you can turn into the New Testament book of Ephesians. If you look for it long enough, you'll find it. And uh, we're going to start right with verse 1. And this is what it says. This letter is from Paul. We're going to stop there. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> That's where we're stopping. One of the things that we need to understand about the Bible, if you're new to Christianity or you're kind of new to understanding what the Bible is. The Bible wasn't written by a bunch of intellectual scholars in a think tank at Oxford University. The Bible was written, 66 books, by dozens of authors over the span of thousands of years. And the Bible is the story of the intersection of God and his purposes and plans with humanity, his creation. So when Paul says... In Ephesians, this letter is from Paul. It's coming with this rich context. It's not coming from an academic kind of perspective. It's, Paul is saying, look, 
This is what I've discovered about God firsthand. I'm about to let you in on one of the greatest stories ever told. And when we see his name, we, we, we understand that it comes with history and it comes with context and perspective. You know when you see on your phone, we all do this, so don't pretend you don't. Somebody calls you and you're like, oh, it's so-and-so. I'm not picking that up. Or like hit the side button straight to voicemail. My, I hate to admit this, and if my mother-in-law is listening to this at some point, I, um, I have a confession to make. So many times they would call the house and I would just let Rochelle get it. I would see the name and I wouldn't run to the phone to get it. I actually don't even do that for my own parents. So it's not like I'm being, uh, you know, but I would see the name and be like, honey, your parents are calling. It's your mom. She's calling. And she would get so mad at me. So mad, like, it's so rude that you don't pick up the phone. And I would say, well, she doesn't know. She doesn't know the difference. It's not like she's in her home in Alberta going, Andrew, I'm very upset with you right now. You didn't pick up the phone. She has no idea, none. And when Paul is saying this letter is from Paul, it's kind of like his name coming up on your phone. And you're going, okay, I hear that name. And here's all the story and all the context that goes with it. And that would have been the case for this Ephesian church and for the people of Asia Minor in their time. They knew the stories of Paul. They knew what had happened. They had heard the stories of how God was using him and working in and through him. And so when he says, this is a letter from Paul, it comes with all of this background and this context. It's not a stale academic document. This is a living, breathing expression of how God works and moves in someone's life. To get a little bit of context, we need to understand exactly who Paul is. And so if you can, I just want you to turn with me back a few books to the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 9, and this is sort of our introduction into Paul, and the reason we're even talking about this is because it has a tremendous implication for what we're about to learn from the book of Ephesians, to understand who was writing it, why he wrote it, what did he experience in his life that led him to the conclusions that he came to in that book, his view of God and faith and himself were shaped by what happened in his life. So we are introduced to Paul in the book of Acts, but we're not actually introduced to him as Paul. We're introduced to him as Saul. I just want to point out something before we get started in this. Oftentimes, um, we kind of assume like God had this... Uh, this thing he would do with men and women sometimes through the Bible, he would change their names, which was like a change of identity and purpose and calling for them. And oftentimes we think that God changed Paul's name from Saul to Paul, but he actually didn't. Saul was his Hebrew name, the name that he would have been raised under, under his Israelite parents, the name that he would have used in his Hebrew context as he was going to school to become a Pharisee and a religious teacher and leader, he went by the name Saul. That was his Hebrew roots. But Saul also lived in a Greek and Roman civilization. 
For that, it carried the name Paul. That was his Greek name. And in some ways, Saul slash Paul was able to walk in and out of these different cultural contexts and be used by God powerfully in them. It wasn't that God changed his name from one to the next. We're actually going to see, I think there's something richer and deeper going on with his identity. How God is constantly referring to him as Saul and everything that comes along with that. And he's referring to himself as Paul. What's interesting is Saul basically means one who is asked for from God, one sent. It's, it's literally a person sent, and the brackets would be by God in that. But his Greek name, Paul, means small. <laughs> it's interesting to me, and I was just thinking about this this week. Um, our names, all of our names have meaning, and in biblical time, their, meaning, their names had greater significance for their lives. But it's interesting that as we uncover the character of, Paul, of Saul in his early life, I could really see how his name, meaning sent one or asked of God for, could really get to his head. Believing that he was the answer to everybody's problems, believing that he had a definitive line on truth and that he would aggressively toe that line. And I find it interesting that, that after Paul begins his ministry time, he refers to himself as Paul, not Saul, which means small. Meaning after everything that God has done for me and shown me, I realize now I'm not the answer. I'm not some anointed one. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not the most gifted. I'm not the most talented. I'm not the most charismatic. I'm not the most loved and admired and appreciated. I'm small. But small plus God is a totally different equation than small plus myself. And so we meet Saul in Acts 9. We'll just start at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering death threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. The first thing you need to know about Saul is he was a terrorist. He was on a, a singular mission to kill, destroy, imprison, and persecute people that follow Jesus. Not only was he a terrorist, he's what today we would call a religious fundamentalist. He held his views on God as a source of and a point of fundamentalism. It was not about relationship for Paul. It was about doctrine and rules. It was about legalism. It was about black and white. It was about yes or no. And so when we're introduced to Saul, we're introduced to a man that's filled with rage and anger, with legalism with religious dogma and, and fundamentalism, a, a man who actually is hell-bent on destroying the very person that came to give him life. He 
he wrote much of the New Testament of the Bible. But that's not how things started for him. He went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I, I mean, yeah, I, I yell into the mic sometimes, not by, I don't do it on purpose. I just, it's just, I get excited. But I was thinking about this week, and maybe sometimes we read that as, as God saying, Saul, Saul, or Saul, Saul. But I think it was actually much more aggressive than that. It was Saul, Saul, what are you doing? Stop. And there's an immediate confrontation of cosmic proportions in Saul's life. If there was a title for today, it's called Getting Confrontational. And we're gonna see today that Jesus is not afraid of confrontation, that the Bible doesn't shy away from confrontation, and there's specific areas of our life and of Saul slash Paul's life that needed the confrontation of the gospel and the presence of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So on this road, as he's focused on destroying the church, on those who follow Jesus, he is determined and focused. He's equipped and he's resourced. He's got everything he needs. He's got the religious background. He's got the training. He's got the financial backing. He's got the rulers around him giving him permission. He's interrupted on the road. And he says in verse 5, Acts 9, 5, Who are you? Lord, Saul asked, and the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Then men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. I just want to stop there. I think that the first sort of area of confrontation that we're going to see through these verses, that's so important as we set up and establish Ephesians, which to me is really a book of confrontation on so many levels. We see that God is interested in confronting things inside of us. And when I say that, it's multifaceted. You know, God has made us humanity in a very specific way. He's designed us in a specific way. And I just want to remind you of the way he's designed us because the confrontation always happens in certain places. God always wants to bring confrontation in us in certain areas. And conversely, the devil always brings confrontation in us in certain areas. So I have a little illustration for you to see, which is sort of like this, um, this picture of how we're made up. And there's three essential components to every one of us. 
There's our spirit, our soul, and our body. Each one of those three has a different function and a different um, responsibility. Our, our spirit is the place that we commune with God. It's our conscience is found in there. It's the place that we connect with God. Our intuition is found in there. That's the innermost part of how God has made us. And outside of that is our soul. And our soul isn't just this nebulous kind of like we're not sure what it is. It's our mind, our will, and our emotions. Our intellect, our will, and our emotions. It's our thought life. It's what we believe. It's what we choose to do. It's how we choose to live. It's the decisions that we make. It's our emotional life. How do we respond and walk through life? How do we respond to the things coming against us? And what is our response to those around us? It's our whole emotional life. And then the exterior is our body. That's our senses, what we see, what we say, what we touch, where we walk, where we go, how we experience and interface with the world around us. And as Saul had this encounter with the living God on this road, there was a confrontation inside of Saul with his mind, his will, and his emotions. Saul, where are you going? Do you really believe that you're in control of your life, Saul? Do you really believe that you can live and walk autonomously from me? Do you really believe that you're the captain of your own ship and that you're an island? Like Simon and Garfunkel said, I'm a rock, I'm an island. That's nonsense. God confronts this humanistic, self-centered idea of ours that our will is ours to determine whatever we want, to live however we want, to be in control of everything that's happening around our lives. And so we live these lives where we're micromanaging and we're scratching and we're clawing and we're trying to do whatever we can to, to keep things propped up and to keep the balls in the air. And we're juggling this life because we believe that we're in control somehow. And God confronts Paul's will. God also confronts what he believes. You know, he thought that he was following God as best he could. He thought he was doing everything by the book. And God comes in and confronts what he believes. I love how it says that Paul, Saul, tried to get up. He got up, but then once he got up, he realized he couldn't see. Isn't that such a, a clear picture for us of so much of our life? It's like, I'll pick myself up and I'll keep walking. And we need to do that. We need to do that. But we are not the determiner of everything in our life. And in that same way, it's like his first instinct was, I'm going to pick myself up and I'm going to carry on with what I wanted to do in the first place. God says, no, you're not. I've got a different plan and a different idea for you. Jesus always confronts what's going on inside. He's very interested in confronting what you believe, what you desire, what you trust. He's interested in confronting where you're going. 
how you live, how you act, what you say. For us to believe that somehow love means the absence of confrontation is to miss the whole point of love in the first place. If you give him a chance, Jesus will confront you about all of these things going on inside. And he did that with Paul slash Saul. I'm going to keep saying that wrong. That's okay. We see from there that he meets a man, and that man is sent by God, and he prays for him. He regains his sight. He's baptized immediately. And then it says immediately he began to preach in the synagogues. He went back to his stomping grounds and immediately began to express this faith that he had. He immediately began to confront the very things that he used to teach and preach with the opposite. The gospel always leads to confrontation in us and then after that through us. Paul begins this life of actually expressing externally this faith and transformation that God had brought him in his heart. As we move on, I just want to jump forward to where we see Paul first going to the city of Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. So God has been confronting things in Paul. It actually says that he went away for three years into the wilderness by himself. And that in that three years, Paul himself said that God basically did a reformatting of his whole life. Everything he believed, everything he knew, everything he practiced and understood came under the confrontation of God. And it took three years for him to come back out of that wilderness and be ready to express his faith to the world around him. First inside, for you and I, Paul and everyone else. First, God wants to confront things inside of us. And then he wants to actually confront things on the outside. We're going to get into that. Paul goes in Acts chapter 19. says, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior region until he reached Ephesus. So Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. It's along the coast there where he found several believers. This is what he says to them first. I love it. First question, confrontation. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. I just want to pause there for a minute. This is so critical for us to understand. Paul arrives in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a port city. It was a busy city 
for commerce and trade. It was a, uh, an, an important city in the ancient Near East for development of thought and religious thought and spirituality. It was an important place in the ancient Near East for people to discuss ideas of life and to engage in business and to engage in all of these cultural things together. When you study sort of the religious practices of the day, it's fascinating that even uh, there was, things weren't so clear as they are today or it seems that they are today. People were mixing in a little bit of this and that and everything else. The religious and spiritual practice, people were deeply interested in the spiritual realm in Ephesus. And that interest largely was fueled by fear. They were afraid of the spiritual realm. They were afraid of forces from the underworld, from the kingdom of darkness impacting their lives. They were afraid of being cursed and they were afraid of these things actually destroying them and, and ruining them. And so even Christians in that time and in that era not only would follow Jesus, but they would engage in incantations and they would buy idols that they could bless and worship and they had little trinkets that they would wear and that they would keep that they would say sort of uh, these specific religious rites over to protect themselves and it was like you know we just want to cover all the bases here so we're gonna not leave any stone unturned and and Paul shows up into this environment and he says what do you really believe Last year, we studied the book of Colossians, which is really Paul's statement to the religious culture of the day. People were deeply interested in spirituality, but it was a self-focused, self-centered spirituality. It's the kind of spirituality that says, just rev up your inner winner because uh, you can make this thing happen. It's that Brene Brown kind of spirituality that has little nuances of Christianity but denies the truth of the gospel. It's that kind of spirituality that says, you know, just pick up your socks and get a little bit better. Just work a little bit harder. You can do it. Just cover your bases here and there and here's some meditation practices and here's some other stuff that you can practice. So just add that in as just a little bit of salt and pepper to your life. And Paul comes in and he says, guys, what do you actually believe? What's so fascinating about this is they say, we've been baptized into John. We believe what John taught. Did you know that there was a 20-year gap between John's ministry and when Paul stepped into Ephesus for this third missionary journey? 20 years of these faithful believers who did not progress in their faith whatsoever. 20 years of living on the surface of Christianity and faith. 20 years of just being 100 miles wide and an inch deep. 20 years of never actually digging into the heart and the purposes of God. 20 years of sitting in the same place and doing the same things over and over and over with no depth or no fruit. And Paul immediately comes in and there's a confrontation there. What is your faith built on? What do you put your trust in? How are you growing? What is God confronting in your life? What do you believe about yourself and about God? What do you believe he wants to do in the world around you? And these guys basically throw their hands up and go, I don't know. We haven't even bothered to figure it out. We've not even asked the question. 
This is just what we experienced. We prayed the prayer at Camp Crossroads when we were eight, and we've done nothing with it. And our faith is about the same as it was when we were eight years old. Like, let's get a little bit honest here, people. Let's get really honest. Has your faith actually grown since you gave your life to Christ? Let's get brutally honest. Do you feel like you know God more today than you did then? Do you feel like he's got more of your heart? Do you feel like your life is leaning more to what he wants from you, more to what he desires for your life? If we take a really honest and hard look at ourselves, I think much of our Western and North American church, we're functional atheists. We come to church on Sunday, but you would never know through how we live, what we do, what we say, what we desire, that we actually believe in God. You would never know that Jesus came and offered us life transformation through his death on the cross because it has had no impact on how we steward our finances, how we lead our families, whether we look at porn or not. It has no impact on how we speak to people and engage in hate and anger, how we treat our husbands and wives and our family members. Our faith has no impact in these areas. And Paul confronts this immaturity in the believers there and says, look, like, that's a good start. But God has so much more that he wants from your life. God wants to confront this stuff that's going inside of you. He wants to confront how you behave. He wants to confront how you lash out at other people. He wants to confront the desires of your heart that run contrary to the purposes of God. He wants to actually bring into clarity his purposes and his life for you. And I think if we're honest, it's so easy for us to get sucked into that kind of Christian sort of pseudo-faith lifestyle where we say we have a faith. And we may even say we have a faith in Jesus, but we have a faith. But we don't know what that faith is in. And it certainly hasn't transformed our lives. There's this great tension in scripture, a great tension. And I don't even wanna suppose to you that I know the exact fine sort of nuance on it, but there's this great tension where Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. We can't earn God's affection or his approval. We can't earn salvation. But then there's this tension point where Jesus says, many, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at what I did. I went to church. I read my Bible once a week. I did whatever. And he'll say, I never knew you. Because it isn't about what we do. It's about relationship and heart. It's about accepting that confrontation of God with the desires that we have and laying them down at his feet and saying, God, if you're for me, no one can be against me. And this kind of faith that you, you're, you're offering to me needs to manifest and express itself. It needs to grow and come to life. I believe that God wants to do that for you and me in this day. That he actually wants to take what was started maybe many years ago 
and it's kind of stalled out and he wants to breathe new life into it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Jesus, his invitation is to confront what's going on inside. And that area of confrontation always happens. There's a confrontation with what we believe with our mind, what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about God and what we believe he's called us to do. There's a confrontation that always takes place in our mind. And there's a confrontation that always takes place with our will. Where are you going? Where is your life directed and oriented right now? What are you doing with your life? Are you walking hell-bent on pursuing your own goals and your own ideas? Or are you surrendered and submitted to the direction that I might have for your life? Are you making decisions for direction in your life through prayer and submission or just through good strategy? If somebody looked at your decision-making and mine in life, would they see the fingerprints of God on it? Or would it be just good best practice? God, I'm doing this with my finances and I'm doing this with my RSPs and this seems like the most logical next career move and this seems like a good place and, and God, I want to do this thing and this is where my heart comes alive so I'm just going to go ahead and pursue it. And there's always this confrontation that happens with our will. Whose design for your life are you following? Yours or the God who made you? I love that when Jesus interrupts Paul on that road, he doesn't say, hey, you who? Hey, you guy down there on your donkey or whatever he was riding, your Mustang. <laughs> he doesn't just give this generic thing. He calls him by his name. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God that he has knit us in our mother's womb. And even before we were in our mother's womb, he had a plan and a purpose for us, that he'd measured out all of the steps of our life and the days of our life, that he knows the amount of hair on your head and even how that decreases over time. He's got a running tally on mine. But he's not just saying, hey, you who? He's saying, Rich, Josh, Herm, Brenda, Andrew, Lou, where are you going? What do you believe about yourself? What, what of me has impacted your life and transformed and changed you? Or are we living like functional atheists, believing that we can say we believe in God, but having no evidence of it in our life? And this tension in the Bible, man, it asks some hard questions. Some really, really hard questions. Like if there's no fruit, is there actually relationship with God? If nothing has changed in your life, can you say you follow Jesus? I'm not saying that as an indictment to you. I'm saying that because the weight of what God is calling us to do and how he's inviting us to live. 
the, the plans that he has laid out for you and the vision he has for your life and the purpose that he has for your life. Demand that confrontation with your soul, with what you believe. Who are you, God? Who am I? What have you made me to be? What have you called me to do? That's part A from this morning. <laughs> and we're gonna actually, I'm just gonna shelf the rest. I guess we'll be in the first verse for three weeks. <laughs> Here's what I just felt like God just putting on my heart. And why don't you just stand with me? I'm sure you're ready for a change of position. <laughs> we're gonna sing a song in just a moment. But I really believe that as I was praying about this and asking God, why, like, why, why do you want to confront these things in our life? He reminded me, I just was thinking, and even this morning, Jesus lived 30 years of his life before God actually released him into ministry. 30 years of confrontation happening in the heart of Jesus to prepare him for what God wanted for his life. 30 years of wrestling, 30 years of, of, of following in obedience and, and suffering and doubt and all of these things, 30 years of God confronting his nature and his character, who he was, who his father was, who God was to him. And I just feel like God said, the reason I want to confront that is not to crush you and destroy you, to cut you down. It's not to bury you so deep in shame and, and condemnation that you can't see the light of day. It's because I actually, when I'm done confronting what's in you, I want to use you to confront what the enemy's doing in the world around you. When I'm done confronting, and he's never going to fully be done, but when I'm done in this season confronting what is in you, I want to release you to confront the effects of evil and sin and destruction, of disease, of depression and anxiety. I want to use you to confront the work of the devil in this world. 1 John 3, 8 says, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. What happens when we receive and accept the confrontation inside that God wants to do is we come into alignment and unity, which brings strength and purpose and focus and determination. When we come into unity and we allow God to confront our sin and we allow him to confront the way we're acting and we allow him to confront these deep areas of our life. It's not to cut us down, but to bring us unity and strength so that we can turn to the world around us that's being destroyed by sin, destroyed by the devil, and have an answer of confrontation for the world around us, to walk in our authority and our calling and the vision of God for our life, to step up in strength and in unity with the purposes of God for our life and walk with our armor into this world that so desperately needs God. I, I'm convinced that the reason we don't see miracles 
more in our Western culture. And the reason we don't see God working around us the way we want is because we've been running away from the confrontation inside of us. We've been running from God. We've been running and he's saying, no, no, no. I'm not confronting this to condemn you. I'm confronting it to reveal to you who you really are, to reveal to you who I really am, and to give you the tools and the capacity to confront the work of the enemy that is destroying your family and your marriage and your kids and our culture in this world. God said to the man who prayed for Saul, that, that man was terrified. He said, God, I don't wanna pray for him. This guy's killing people like me. And God said this to him. He said, he's my chosen instrument and he'll learn what it means to suffer for me. You and I are instruments in the hands of the almighty God. And what he wants to do is release that instrument of his righteousness on the earth and peace in your life and joy in your life. He wants to release his kingdom in you and through you so that you're not bound by fear and anxiety. You're not crippled by lust and sexual immorality. You're not defeated by anger and outbursts and uncontrolled emotions. He wants to lay his hand on you inside and confront what's going on in your soul. And it's not to destroy you. It's actually to free you. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.